Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. God promised Israel that he would bring them into the promised land. But before that could happen, they needed to recall God's grace towards them, remembering where he had brought them from, how he had defended them and provided for all their needs. part two of Cheryl's message titled, Inventory of God's Grace. How did God get you to this place where you're saved? How did God bring you into this place where you are right now? You're a miracle. Your salvation is such a miracle. But then the grace of all you've come through. Oh my goodness. Think of all the battles behind you. All the victories God has won in your life. All those places where you thought, I'll never make it through this one. I'm going down for sure. And somehow, here you are. You've made it through and God availed. And then all you possess through Christ. All the things. You've got a community here at Calvary Chapel, at Joyful Life. We are your people. We are your sisters. You've been brought into the family of God. How great is that? You are wanted. You are loved. Jesus loves you. Oh, all that we have through Christ, all the promises of God that we possess, the citizenship in heaven. There's a danger when we fail to take inventory of the grace of God in our lives. This is what happens. We ascribe where we are to our own power, our own perseverance, And when we do, we lose the sense of the power of God in our lives because our parade of pride takes precedence over the grace of God. You see, we are here by God's grace and not by any self-effort or anything we have done. It is God. It is God. It is God. But when we ascribe it to ourselves, we put extra responsibility in ourselves. The pressure increases. We can get so awful because we've got to do this. And you know, pride is ugly. It's just plain old ugly. I do pride ugly. You know how some people cry ugly? I pride ugly. It's just ugly. When we ascribe victory, you know, well, I won that battle to chance or coincidence. And sometimes we do. Oh, well, you know, this happened and this happened and this happened. And so here we are. And we don't realize the hand of God in the victories that we have. There's no security. Every battle that comes, you're like, I don't know. You know, we got a 50-50 chance. There's no security. But when we ascribe it 
rightly to God as the victor, then all we have to do is stand in God. And we know we are guaranteed the victory through Christ because we are told in 2 Corinthians that God always gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2.14, we always have the victory when we are following Jesus. But when we ascribe victory to ourselves, well, what happens? We say, well, it was my strategy or it was my strength or it's the community we are in. Then we put so much expectation on our strategy and our plans. All our faith goes into strategizing or into personal strength or even we put pressure on the community we're in and we start having expectations for the church or for our friends or for our family. Like you need to do this. You need to show up. You need to do your part. And it keeps us from effectively fighting against the enemy. And and we do one of two things. We either huddle and try to hide from the enemy and just shoot out at him, bomb the enemy, instead of bringing the gospel to the enemy. Or we join the enemy. We begin to try to appease or compromise with the enemy so he won't attack us. When we ascribe what we have, our possessions, to our own deservedness, like, well, I'm entitled, I earned this, I deserve this, I lose the sense of God's grace and I become thankless, thankless. You know, there is nothing worse than a thankless person. You ever give a gift to a thankless person? It's so demoralizing. They just go, "Mm mm-hmm. Oh, one of these. Oh, I already have three. Great, because I spent all my money on that. And I really wanted some C's candy too, but I gave it all to you. You know, it's we become thankless. And when we become thankless, when we ascribe it to our own power, you know what we press down, what we pass out? Our personal testimony. Oh, I'm sorry you're not like me. because I do everything right. I have this young girl and she spoke to me and she said, why am I having marital issues? And I said, because you're you? And she's like, no, no, you don't understand. I did everything right, everything right. And I said, then that's why you've got marital issues because you did everything right. See, I did everything wrong and I don't have any. Mine is all by the grace of God and yours. You're dealing with humanity. But she really said, you know, I don't understand this. I did everything right. I mean, she was like angry. I felt like I was getting, you know, punches for God, you know. I did everything right. And I said, that's why. Because of your self-righteousness. Because this is what happens. If someone has marital problems, you're going to say, follow me. Follow me. I do everything right. Just follow me. If you just follow me, you can have a perfect marriage too. Or your point to your methodology. Okay, make sure that you do this. Remember the Total Woman book? Some of you who are like my age and older. Like she was telling you how to have the best marriage. Anyway, she got a divorce. I'm just saying. Because, you know, methodologies don't work. And we're pointing people to a system instead of to the grace of God. Or we're pointing people to, these are the five rules I live by. It doesn't have to be the Mosaic Law. There's also Cheryl's Law. 
And if I point people to Cheryl's law and they're trying to abide by the law, there goes the grace of God and the power of God. I don't want to pass down rules and regulations or methodologies or even me to my children. I want to pass down the promises and the power and the grace and the heritage of God's children to my own children, to the people of God, to this younger generation. I want to say, you've got the promises of God. You're going to find everything you need in Jesus, everything. And he's got so much for you. In Joshua 12 and 13, before moving into the land and the houses God had for them and into the territories that were going to be allotted to them. They needed to take inventory of God's grace, where God had brought them, who God had defeated for them, and what God had already given them in order that they might properly allot the promised land, move fully into these promises and pass the promises down as a heritage to their children, their children's children, their children's children's children, their children's 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 children, children, and so on. We find that God had brought them, remember 50 years earlier where they had been? Slaves in Egypt. Against them were the armies of Egypt, the Red Sea, the wilderness, their own sin, their own disunity. In fact, when Moses first appeared to them, they didn't even want him as a leader. All these things were against them. But God miraculously delivered them from Egypt. And they went out as a people together. He parted the Red Sea. He drowned the Egyptian army. He brought them through the wilderness. He removed the doubters, detractors, and deterrents from their midst. He gave them water from rocks to refresh and sustain them. He fed them every day with manna. From heaven, angels' food, to nourish and strengthen them. You know, they say that manna looked like a coriander seed and tasted sweet. Could it be that it tasted like angel food cake? I'm just saying. God dealt with all the impediments. He told them, I will get you into that land. But it looked like an impossibility 50 years earlier. But God dealt with the oppressors, the seas, the wilderness, the wild animals, the dryness, the climate, the rivers, the raiders, the giants, the curses of prophets, Joshua 13, 22, with Balaam, with the sabotage and schemes of the enemy, Numbers 25, 1 through 2, 16 through 18. Again, Balak using Balaam. God brought them all the way across the Jordan River and into the land. And now, as the people are taking inventory, as they take inventory, they are standing on, they are living in the very land God promised them. And they're eating the produce of that land. They're eating of the wheat and the barley and the crops. They're partaking of the fruit, the grapes that the spies had brought back from this land. They are eating those grapes, the dates, the figs, the pomegranates, the olives. What seemed absolutely impossible to their forefathers. In fact, what their fathers had attempted, failed to do, 
they are standing and camped and eating from and occupying the very land. They are there. They are living the promise. And God has done it all. Everything. They are on holy ground. In Joshua 12, they take inventory of all the battles God has won. These kings were all defeated by battles. And Israel was weak. These were nations that were greater and mightier than they were. But they defeated the great kings on the east of the Jordan. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And that would be the area that is now known as the Golan Heights. And the foothills that run along the Galilee from Mount Hermon to the river Arnon. Including the eastern side of the Jordan River and the northeast. What is now the area of Teldan. They were able to conquer Og. And he's one of the remnants of the giants. He had a kingdom of giants. His bed was iron. And to accommodate him, it had to be 12 feet long and six feet wide, according to Deuteronomy 3.11. Talk about a king-size bed. We're not talking a California king. We're talking an Og king. And this is the eastern plain from the side of the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea. Then west of Jordan, the land God promised, formerly occupied by the king of Jericho, defeated, king of Ai, defeated, king of Jerusalem, defeated, king of Hebron, defeated, king of Jarmuth, defeated, king of Lachish, defeated, king of Eglon, defeated, king of Gezer, old Gezer, defeated, king of Debur, defeated, king of Gedor, Defeated, king of Hormah, defeated, king of Ered, defeated, king of Libna, defeated, king of Adullam, defeated, king of Makara, defeated, king of Bethel, defeated. You know, I think that it was important that they name each one of their kings, these kings that have been defeated, to remember, defeated, 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 defeated by God. Conquered, conquered, conquered. Tapua, king of Hefer, King of Aphek, King of Lasharon, King of Madon, King of Hazar, who was the king of the kingdoms in Israel, King of Shimron, King of Akshaph, King of Tanakh, King of Megiddo, King of Kadesh, King of Jokneam in Carmel, King of Dor, King of Gilgal, King of Tirzah. 33 kings in all. Two great kingdoms on the eastern side of the Jordan and 31 great kingdoms on the western side of Jordan. And these included their armies, their nobles, their leadership, their peoples, soldiers. God had defeated giants, armies, cavalries, chariots, fortresses. He approved himself greater than all the weapons of the enemy, what they now possessed, what Israel now had in their possession. They had valleys and mountains and ranges and plains and seas and slopes and rivers and kingdoms and houses and farms and orchards and crops and cattle and horses and sheep and lands. By the grace of God, this is where they're standing on this holy ground, looking back on this mountaintop, seeing all God had defeated, all God had already 
done for them and all that they now possessed. And God speaks to Joshua about all that remains yet to be possessed. Take it, take it all as an inheritance, a gift from God. Joshua 13, one, God says to Joshua, and I love how God sometimes states the obvious because we see it, but we won't acknowledge it. Now Joshua is old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Sometimes God just needs to tell us because we're like, no, that's not really a line. And God says, no, that's a line. That's a, that you're old, you are old. You know, like, is this ache just because I shouldn't have lifted that box? Or is it because I'm, you know, almost 58? It's because you're almost 58. You shouldn't lift boxes like that. It's what young people are for. Your children are for. You call them up and you say, lift this box for me. I had you, I raised you, lift it. But here he's saying, Joshua, you're old and advanced in years, but there still remains very much land yet to be possessed. Don't you love it? No matter how old you get or advanced in years, you're still young enough for the promises of God. Isn't that amazing? There's still land to be possessed. My aunt Isi at 83 years old, she applied for and got the job of teaching the high school ministry at her little church. As she took that high school group and she grew it from five kids to, there were quite a few children, high school kids. They just absolutely loved my 83 and 84 year old Aunt Easy. They couldn't get enough of the Bible and the grace of God that came forth from her and oh, how she would pray for them, how she interceded for them. It wasn't unusual to go to Easy's house and have some high schooler knocking at the door just to come in and talk to Easy, and she'd be like, oh, oh, you know, Julie's here. It's Julie who Jesus loves. Oh, it's Julie who Jesus loves. And, you know, Julie would come in like, yes, here I am, the beloved of the Lord, you know, and she's all of 14 years old. And she wants to talk to an 83-year-old about her whole life. And, and my aunt would sit down and listen as Julie poured out. There were so many young people at my aunt's funeral because she had touched their lives in just such an incredible way by the grace and the love. At 83, she realized there was so much land to still be conquered. My other aunt, my dad's older sister, Virginia, they had to retire her at 80. It was mandatory retirement. She was still teaching high school. And she had asked in her 70s if she could be the teacher of the unwed mothers in high school. And that was her specialty. She wanted those that others rejected. She wanted those that felt that they had disqualified themselves because she could say anything she wanted to them and she would tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. My Aunt Virginia, when she had mandatory retirement, she made up these cards and she went around and she put them on all the neighbor's doors offering 25 cents and all the cookies anyone could want if any of the children in the neighborhood would help her come over and weed once a week. And all these kids showed up at my aunt's house to have cookies and to help her weed her garden. And then she said, and I've got an extra surprise. And she gathered them all into her living room and she told them about Jesus. And she would give them Bible stories. And those kids would come, they'd be waiting at the door for her to wake up so that they could come in. And she'd be like, oh, I have to have my cup of coffee. 
And then she would just go out and talk to them while they weeded her garden. You see, there remains so much land to be conquered. It's never over. There is still so much more that God has for us. There's more promises, more extensions, more blessings, more battles to be fought and won. Verses two through six, God begins to outline the territory, territory of the Philistines, the coastlands, north, all the way to Egypt, the Southland of the Canaanites, the land of the Gibelites, and all Lebanon from Mount Hermon to Hamath. God is saying, I want to do so much more. I want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you have asked or thought about. I want to extend the borders. I want to go beyond, beyond, beyond. God promises to drive out the inhabitants from before Israel. First, it's to be given and allotted. Give them this territory. I'll give them my promises with the territory. And then each tribe by faith is responsible to take the portion given and to finish the work, to apply all that they have learned fighting with Joshua, to use all the grace that they've been imparted with. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh are to settle the territory that they have requested on the east side of the Jordan. And Joshua reminds them again and again, it's an inheritance. It's a gift. In our lives, we have inherited the promises of Christ. Christ won them. Christ earned them. And then he gives them to us as an inheritance because we believe in him. Not because we've earned them, not because we deserve them. This is the grace of God. It is not possible to receive these promises apart from God's intention, intervention, and instructions. It's not an entitlement, and it's not a wage earned. It's the gift of God. There is no allotment, we're told in Joshua thirteen thirty three, given to the tribe of Levi. They are not given one territory that they can just huddle in. They are to be spread throughout the whole nation of Israel. There are to be Levites located in each of the tribal allotments. Why? To keep the spirituality of Israel intact. Each of the men of the tribes of Levi, they have special duties that once a month, every year, they will have to go to the tabernacle and serve. It's like a, a retraining, a recertification so that they will again get the law and the stories and the heritage of God and take it back to all the different tribes of Israel so that there will be spiritual leadership through the land. They are to retrain, relearn, and be able to relate the laws of the Lord to the tribes of Israel. We love holy huddles, don't we? But God sends us out and he puts us everywhere out among the people that we might be an example, that we might lead spiritually, that we can compel others to go to the feast of the Lord at the tabernacle. And so God sent the Levites out among the people and said, I'm your inheritance. 
You don't need to all huddle together. I'm your inheritance wherever you go. I want you to feed and feast on me that you might pass out and pass down and pass around all my promises to the children of Israel and keep them mindful of me and my promises. This inventory that Israel took reminded them of the faithfulness of God and his promises, God's fortitude to make it happen, and God's favor upon their lives. And this would inspire them to continue to seek and serve the Lord, fight the enemy, settle into his promises, hold on to their allotment, appreciate their allotment, and pass down the promises of God to all of Israel. God wanted Israel to take inventory of all he had done. This was to remind them of the faithfulness of God and his promises, God's commitment to make it happen, and God's favor upon their lives. This would inspire them to seek and serve the Lord, fight the enemy, settle into his promises, hold on to their allotment, and pass down the promises of God to the future generations. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll continue our look at God's grace as we continue our Possessing the Promises series in the book of Joshua with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.